last week we started a mini-series called, not a mini-series like on TV, but a mini-series called Echoes of Exodus, and I call it that because these two sections of the Gospel of Mark serve as kind of a microcosm of the original Exodus out of Egypt, as well as a foreshadowing of the Messianic Kingdom to come by portraying Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, as the greater Moses, the greater Elijah, and the greater Elisha. All of these prophets worked miracles with food and with the parting of water, but in these passages, Yeshua shows his own authority and miracles to be even greater as he displays his absolute authority over the natural world. That all this happens as part of an even larger story contrasting the Messianic kingdom with Herod Antipas's kingdom with all his oppressive practices and the unjust killing of John the Baptist, you know, making Herod Antipas play the part of Pharaoh, you know, just gives this story an amazing richness. So to sum it up, two weeks ago, we talked about Herod Antipas, the Roman puppet king, uh, killing John the Baptist so he would not lose face in front of his dinner guest. The ultimate and, you know, petty, pointless oppression. Last week, we had the feeding of the 5,000 who followed Yeshua into the wilderness, feeding them not manna, but barley loaves, and feeding them not quail until they grew sick, but feeding them fish until they were satisfied. This week, um, we'll see another water miracle, but not the kind of water miracle worked by Moses, Elijah, or Elisha. This is a greater miracle that will show Yeshua's complete mastery over the seas and show that he isn't simply one of the prophets. So starting out in uh, chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark this week, starting out in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately they spoke. he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Genesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, 
and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. I also have a new children's radio broadcast called Context for Kids. And uh, you can catch that on the radio or you can... Um, uh, catch past broadcasts. I've got them all archived at contextforkids.podbean.com or at my website contextforkids.com, and that's F-O-R, not four, not not the not the number four. Now, all scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, which is the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources for this teaching and for all the teachings can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. So this week we are finishing up chapter six. Verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. So this is interesting. Yeshua sent the disciples away immediately, but without any explanation as to why. This was an undoubtedly a very exciting event for the disciples, who might have been the only ones aware of the miracle. Although it's difficult to imagine the crowd not being aware of what had happened with the miraculous multiplication of the loaves, none of the synoptics, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give any indication that they were aware of the miracle. John, on the other hand, has the crowd wanting to make him their king. You know, my personal gut feeling, which is, you know, next to worthless because I have no proof, is that Yeshua was going to have a lot easier time dealing with the crowd's expectations if his young disciples weren't there witnessing what they'd seen. Yeshua's feeding of the crowd was an act of compassion after teaching them, and, and Matthew says that he healed some as well, but was not intended to start a rebellion. You know, a, a rebellion would result in more deaths than just his, and the time was not yet come. Yeshua was always very wise about not provoking his death before it was absolutely necessary to do so. So, he put them into the boat and sent them to Bethsaida Julius, which we see in uh, John one forty four and 12.21 is the hometown of Peter and Andrew and Philip. Bethsaida Julius. This was not in Galilee, but in Galon... Galon <laughs> I always want to say Galonitis like it's a disease because that's the way the word, word, the, the word uh, looks. Um, but it's the uh, Grecianized form of Golan. This was Herod Philip's territory, 
which makes sense given John's addition. Okay, if the people truly wanted to make him their king, being as they were sheep without a shepherd, that's one of the things it said last week, then Yeshua had to send his disciples to the other side, to Philip's tetrarchy, where they would not be considered a threat. Now, this is really portraying a very deadly situation. We've just heard the story of how Herod Antipas killed John over a rash oath. How much more so would he kill a messianic claimant at the head of an army 5,000 men strong? John wasn't even really much of a threat, but um, a raised from the dead John who could work miracles and, you know, as you recall, that's who Herod believed Yeshua was. Now, this would result in a situation where a great many would die, if, if not all of them. And that's not why Yeshua came. Not for a showdown with Herod or with Rome, but with the spiritual um, forces that were behind Herod and behind Rome. Yeshua always kept, he, he always knew who the real enemy was. And that's one of the thing. that's one of the major themes of Mark as we've been going through. So, Yeshua dismisses the crowd. You know, they can't make him king if he refuses, but he can send them home if they aren't listening to him. Must have been a pretty good speech to calm them down and get them to return home, you know? I mean, think about it. Now, remember that these people were desperate, often near starvation and angry. They wanted to overthrow the Gentile rule in the worst way and were praying and longing for the day when Messiah would come and do just that. All right, verse 46. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. At important crisis points, Yeshua will leave everyone and go somewhere alone to pray. There are three of these crises in the Gospel of Mark. The first, if you remember, is in chapter 1, after he was first mobbed in Capernaum, after the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, when the people were bringing their sick and demonized from all around. That was first. Now, this right here that we're talking about today, this is the second occurrence. After this temptation to become king and forego the way of the cross... Okay, the third will be at Gethsemane when he again faces temptation when faced with not only his own death, but the barbarity and brutality of his death. You know, you get these things and he prays. He reconnects with the Father in his will. I, I guess we could say it's a centering or a reality check in getting away from the confusion of the crowds. People like to think that all this was easy for him, but it wasn't. He was tempted to go the easy route, not just in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, but when tempted by people as well. And the author of Hebrews makes that clear. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is Hebrews 2.18. For... Um, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. It's Hebrews 4, 
verse 15. And if he needed to pray when tempted, we really need to pray when tempted. Uh, Verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Now, now here we go. What should this remind us of? We have a threat from Herod Antipas because his subjects want to make Yeshua king instead of him, according to the Gospel of John. And if he can't control his subjects, then he knows Rome will replace him as Tetrarch. So, Herod Antipas is playing the part of Pharaoh here. He has already committed senseless violence against John the Baptist, shedding innocent blood just as Pharaoh did, and we find Yeshua alone by the seashore. Do you remember the servant songs of Isaiah? Okay, we did that series last time, over the winter. The servant was portrayed as the perfect representative of the faithlessness of Israel, or of faithless Israel. The servant was never Israel as a whole. Okay, remember that the wording is clearly not all Israel, but one perfect representative. Now, if you haven't listened to my series on Isaiah and the Messiah, I hope you will go back and do that, because we start in Isaiah 40 and go verse by verse through Isaiah 56. I didn't leave anything out. And uh, it took 17 weeks, and that's why. (laughs) Now, Mark has highlighted that theme with Yeshua not only as the Yahweh warrior come to save his people from the forces of evil, but also as the servant who himself will stand in as Israel so that God's plans to save the world through Israel will come to pass. Now, this, 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 this symbolism here, this is Israel at the western shore of the Yom Suf with Pharaoh breathing down their neck. Of course, Yahweh told Moses to raise his staff and part the sea. You know, Yeshua led them. Oops, I hope that didn't make a big sound. I whacked the microphone with my hand. Yeshua, these people followed Yeshua to the sea. All right. Um, Now, Yahweh told Moses to raise his staff and part the sea, and Israel walked across in safety. Joshua took the Israelites across the Jordan after parting the waters as well. Elijah, and then Elisha, threw down a cloak and parted the water so they could pass through. So, parting the waters is not an everyday event, but the leaders and prophets had done it on at least four occasions. But we know that Yeshua is greater than Israel, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than the prophets. What will he do when trapped alone by the seashore, you know, without a boat? Verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, they came to him walking on the sea. Now, does this sound, does this come off as funny to everyone, anyone else? Here you see the disciples straining to row against the wind. It's night on the Sea of Galilee, and the four fishermen are probably tired since they aren't used to working nights anymore. 
which is when all the fishing happened. The other eight probably aren't experienced rowers either. And almost as an afterthought, Mark just happens to mention that, oh yeah, Yeshua is walking on the water toward them. Um, and, and the verse goes on. He meant to pass by them. To me, that makes it even funnier. He just meant to pass by them. But maybe that was a good idea because of what happened next. Verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Okay. We're going to backtrack a bit here. Moses parted the Yom Suf with his staff, and Israel passed over on dry land. Joshua parted the Jordan with the Levites and the Ark of the Covenant, and Israel passed over. Those are well known, so we aren't going to cover them. The other two are less well known and involve Elijah and Elisha, who we talked about last week because they also both worked miracles associated with divine food provision. Now, this story is in 2 Kings 2, where Elijah is going to be taken up and away to heaven. Starting in verse 7, 50 men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. <coughs> Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I can do for you before I am taken from you. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elijah replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet... If you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel! And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elisha, Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. So, um, you know, Yeshua could have just parted the Sea of Galilee and walked across, but instead he performs the far greater miracle of walking across on the surface of the water. And I think this thing is like 17 feet deep in some, some, some places. I mean, this is like... If it goes wrong, it, it's deadly, right? Notice that unlike Moses, unlike Joshua, unlike Elijah and Elisha, no props are involved. No staff, no ark, no rolled up cloak. 
And remember that this comes on the heels of our hearing rumors about Yeshua's identity. Some say Elijah, and some say one of the other prophets has returned. Yeshua dismisses these possibilities by totally eclipsing their miracles. And yet, the text says that he intended to pass them by, but they saw him. He's not a show-off, never a show-off. Perhaps this is Yeshua when no one is watching, totally at ease with and in mastery over nature. But maybe there's something more here in him passing them by. Let's look at Exodus chapter 33, verses 19 through 23. It's actually one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. First uh, Kings 19.11 and he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Job 9, verses 8 through 11. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and the Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. So, it did kind of sound comical at first, the way it was expressed. But when we look deeper into the scriptures, this concept of Yahweh passing his people by is very well established. Mastery over the waters is a very important biblical concept because it's written that only Yahweh has such power and control. And, you know, frankly, that's one of the first things that, that he does in Genesis, isn't it? as he gains mastery over the waters. His spirit hovers over the surface of the waters. And, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> very congested today. And um, he, he commands the waters in Genesis 1. So let's cover um, this again briefly, although, you know, we already did it in these verses that when we talked about Yeshua calming the storm at sea a number of weeks ago. Um, Psalm 107, verses 28 through 32 says, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. 
he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank God for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. But Jonah, verse, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea seized from its raging. Then the people feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. One more before we break for the half hour here. Job 9.8, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Isn't it just, it's just incredible. We'll just be back in, in a few minutes here. It's Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to this week's Character in Context. This week we are talking about the incident in the Gospel of Mark at the end of chapter 6 where Yeshua walks on the water, and um, I call this series Echoes of Exodus because we've really got this microcosm of Exodus themes um, in the teaching last week and this week where we had the feeding of the 5,000 and and this week we've got Yeshua seemingly trapped in between Herod Antipas and the sea and, and what he does and how we're showing him to be the greater Moses, the greater Joshua, or the greater Elijah, the greater Elisha, all that jazz. So when we just went through all the verses... Oh, not all the verses, but some of the verses in Scripture where it talks about Yahweh controlling, having absolute control over the water. And here Yeshua shows himself that he has absolute control over the water too, which Moses did not, which Joshua did not, which Elijah and Elisha did not. They needed props. They, you know, it, you know, they didn't have the absolute authority within themselves. So, now, people keep asking who Yeshua is, but no one's getting the right answer because the answer is just too unthinkable. Of course, we know that Yeshua is the divine, unique Son of God, the manifestation of his glory, power, and presence, but this had never been imagined, and especially in Greco-Roman times. You know, the idea of divinity wrapped up in a normal human body... It, it, even the pagans didn't know. <laughs> it was offensive in the extreme, not only to the Jews, but also to the pagans. You know, but it was about to get a whole lot more offensive. And Mark tells us that they do not know who he is while he is passing by. You know, totally ironic because, you know, they do not know yet. But his disciples freaked out and assumed he was a ghost. So... Let's talk real quick here about superstition in first century Judaism. In the Babylonian Talmud, 
And remember that there were two versions of the Talmud. One is Talmud Yerushalami and the other is Talmud Bavli. Um, one was written in the East by the Babylonian Jews and the other in the West, um, not really in Palestine because mostly they weren't there anymore, but it was uh, written in the West. But this is in the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, Baba Batra 73a, it records this interesting superstition, presenting the idea that the sea is actually the haunt, the haunting place of demonic and destructive entities that still have to obey Yahweh. Once, they related, we were on a voyage, and the wave lifted us up so high that we saw the resting place of the smallest star. And there was a flash as if one shot 40 arrows of iron. And if it had lifted us up still higher, we would have been burned by its heat. And one wave called to the other, my friend, have you left anything in the world that you did not wash away? I will go and destroy it. The other replied, Go and see the power of my master, or the master by whose command I must not pass the sand of the shore, even as much as the breadth of a thread. As it is written, Fear ye not me, saith the Lord. Will ye not tremble at my presence, who have placed the sand for the bound of the sea, an everlasting ordinance which it cannot pass? Um, Ethiopic Enoch or First Enoch, so-called because um, the only complete copy of it is in the ancient Ethiopian language, which is now only used by in the Ethiopian church liturgy, uh, was written before, during, and after the Maccabean times. Okay, so this verse that I'm about to read from the Similitudes was written sometime between 105 and 64 uh, before the Common Era. It's, of course, a pseudepigraphic work. We talk about this a lot. Not actually written by Enoch, but by someone during the early years um, before um, the Roman occupation. In this section, the elements are written about as though they have spirits of their own that can really only be reined in by Yahweh. Well, you know, not really spirits of, of their own, but instead they are spirits in the mind of the people at the time. This is First Enoch 60, verse 16. And the spirit of the sea is male and strong, and according to the power of its strength, the spirit turns it back with a rain, and likewise it is driven forward and scattered amongst all the mountains of the earth. Okay, And, and they absolutely believed in ghosts. Um, this next one is from the Wisdom of Solomon, written sometime during the first century before the Common Era by an Alexandrian Jew in Greek. So again, this is going to be fairly contemporary with Yeshua. For while they supposed to lie hid in their secret sins, they, are, they were scattered under a dark veil of forgetfulness, being horribly astonished and troubled with strange apparitions were partly vexed with monstrous apparitions and partly fainted, their heart failing them for sudden fear and not looked for, came upon them. 
All right. That's the wisdom of Solomon 17, 3 and 15. So specifically, it was believed that sailors or fishermen who drowned would continue to haunt the place over their body. So this is probably what was going through the minds of the four experienced fishermen and the eight landlubbers. I mean, the other alternative was silly. It had to be a ghost. No way could it be a person walking on the water, right? I just had a thought. This is kind of morbid. But just think of, like, you know, <laughs> if they believe that, you know, the there's, they would haunt the place above their body. Well, I mean, it was probably eaten by a billion fish, so spirit could be anywhere. No, that's gross. Okay, sorry. Um, back to the scriptures. Um, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, this is the second time that Yeshua has challenged his disciples on being fearful, and the first time was when he stilled the storm. You know, showing the authority that the Bible says only God himself has. Still, they don't recognize or understand the ramifications of what they're experiencing. You know, like I said before, it's just too unthinkable. Now, last time it was a rebuke when they were asked why they were so afraid, and this time it's actually words of comfort. But there is something easy to miss in these words of comfort, namely the words ego I me, which we see translated in this verse as it is I. But when the same words mean, you know, when the, when the, but when the same words appear in the uh, Greek translation of Exodus 3.14, they are translating the Hebrew phrase I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. I will include Exodus 3.14 in the Greek, in the transcript, if you want it, but I'm not even going to try and say it because my pronunciation skills in every foreign language are abysmal. Even after two quarters of German and a few years of French and all that jazz, you know, we all have our gifts. This is not one of mine. I don't pretend otherwise. Um, so it would not be out of line to rephrase this response to their fear as take heart. I am. Fear not. You know, Yeshua keeps showing them that he can do things that only Yahweh himself has the authority to do. He pronounces people forgiven. He teaches by his own authority. He doesn't have to appeal to any higher authority when healing or casting out demons. He can turn a bit of food into enough bread and meat to feed a multitude. He can command the storms to be muzzled and walk on water. He can heal someone just by coming into contact with them. He can heal lepers and raise the dead. He can do everything the prophets did. But then he does more, and the way he does it is not the same way they did it. They have to ask God for help. Somehow, Yeshua has the power, authority, and help without even asking. But they still have no idea who he is, and they won't until after he's raised from the dead. There is a blindness over all of Israel and even over the enemy's camp. Israel doesn't know who he is, and Satan is too distracted by his house being looted of all the people he had in bondage to even begin to suspect the overall plan. And um, 
We can't overlook the command to not be afraid because, again, these are the words of Yahweh to his people throughout Isaiah. Isaiah 7.4 And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. Isaiah 8.11-12 Fear God, wait for the Lord, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Um, Isaiah 35, verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Isaiah 40, verse 9. Go up on a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Isaiah 41.1, fear not, for I am with you. 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Chapter 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, who created he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. Verse, uh, chapter 43, verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring back your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. So, there are hints everywhere, and, and yet everything is hidden unless you have a narrator like we have. Yahweh has at long last come to his people through his one unique son, to deliver them from sin and death, but he cannot be recognized yet. Back to chapter six, uh, Mark 6, uh, verse 51. And he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Again, as he has power over the storm, here the winds that have been working against them as they rode suddenly stopped. They didn't even say anything. Absolute authority over the wind and the waves. Now, why does he say that they did not understand about the loaves? Well, in their eyes, he's still just a prophet like Elijah. They aren't putting two and two together. These, these are hardworking men. And they are not great sages who have poured over the scriptures. And I imagine even if they had, they still wouldn't understand. This says that their hearts were hardened, which is another reference back to the first Exodus and Pharaoh 
But in this case, you know, it isn't because they're evil, and it certainly isn't because they're stupid. This is actually the first, but not the last, time it will be used about the disciples, and both times in reference to the miraculous feedings. You know, hearts can be hardened for many reasons. Um, in, the, in the fifth controversy dialogue, at the beginning of chapter 3, Yeshua is furious at the hardness of heart of the Pharisees who were laying in wait to entrap him if he dared to restore the man with the withered hand. Later, we will see him rebuking the Hillelite Pharisees for their heartless divorce rulings and claiming that the divorce law was given by Moses because their hearts were so hard. But the disciples don't fall into this category. They aren't stupid or evil. Well, okay, one is. Or unwilling to follow him. They just don't believe who he is showing them he is. You know, and, and we wouldn't either, I imagine, if we were them. You know, blindness is blindness. And we're all blind in ways. And we've all got hardened hearts in one way or another. Okay. The last verses of chapter 6 here and uh, next week, we will get to everyone's, um, you know, favorite food controversy. No, we won't. Yes, yes, we will. Yeah, next next week is, is the favorite food controversy of everyone. Um, so let's um, finish this up. Mark 6, verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Genesaret and moored to the shore. Now, they'd set out for Bethsaida, as you might remember from the beginning, but ended up in uh, Genesaret, and which was southwest of Capernaum and squarely in the, uh, the territory of um, Herod Antipas again. So, so much for getting out of Dodge, right? Those must have been some wins, although we don't know where, um, actually they started from when they were rowing. Uh, verse 54. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. Now, obviously he wasn't expected, but certainly in a town this close to Capernaum, he was famous. And they recognized him immediately, and I'm sure the disciples had been there too when they were traveling. Verse 55. And they ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And I am always touched by this account. You can just imagine the excitement, but also the love within this community that people weren't just pressing in and mobbing him, but they were traveling and getting sick, the sick from among them to bring to him. You know, very different from his experience in the town uh, where Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood lived. And I think it's very notable that we don't see anything about Yeshua teaching or preaching here, right? After all, his message was that the kingdom had arrived and he was telling them to live in loving ways. And these people are obviously doing just that on behalf of their sick instead of looking out for themselves. Verse 56, and wherever 
he came in the villages, cities, or countryside. They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Of course, we see the same thing again in Acts 5, verses 14 through 16, because Peter was walking in the authority of Yeshua, who walked in the authority of Yahweh. Um, so this is next. Uh, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But they aren't, but they aren't there yet, okay? And when, you know, way back here, they aren't there yet. The Peter's not, you know, doing this yet. For now, no one can see Yeshua as anything more than one of the great prophets. Honestly, Excuse me. Whoa. It seems like they're just grateful for the healing as he travels around. It's amazing how differently he is treated in these small towns by their inhabitants, great and small, versus how he's treated by the Bible experts. It's really a good lesson to us all that a relationship with a book is not the same with a relationship, same as a relationship with Yahweh. And even for those who do genuinely have a relationship with them, with him, it can still be hard to see the forest, you know, for the trees. Oh, so anyway, oh, we have extra time. I'm going to tell you about a book I'm reading right now. And I think the name of the author is Tom Gilman. This is the first of his books that I've read. And, and the book is, is called Too Good to be False. And it's, it's very much an apologetic and, you know, about how Yeshua couldn't possibly have been created by fictional writers because no one would have created Yeshua, especially not in the first century. Um, he, he went against so many of the cultural paradigms and, and not just religious paradigms, but I mean cultural paradigms with he's the only he's the only um, person ever written about who has no vices. <laughs> you know, um, you can't come up with and and you know the the Hebrew Bible, or for that at the or the first century writings for that matter when they're talking about anyone but Yeshua boy they do not spare on the 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 recording of the faults um none of the scriptures have ever whitewashed anyone i mean the greatest personages in the history of Israel from Adam, obviously, you know, <laughs> and Eve, to um, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, every single one of his kids, and especially Judah and uh, Levi and, and Reuben, his firstborn, and um, 
they were all very flawed. No matter how faithful they are, the Bible doesn't spare the gory details about how how flawed they were and faithless at times they were. And don't even get me going on King David. Oh my gosh. And Solomon. Oh, jeez. You'd have to have a rating on an accurate movie about his life, um, including David's life too. And it wouldn't be G or PG. But not even R, probably. But, you know, we've got this Yeshua, and he was not written about like anyone else in history, not by the Jews, not by the Gentiles, not by the pagans. There's nobody else in literature like him. And the way he died was so shameful in the ancient world that no one would want their great leader portrayed like that even if he did even if he was resurrected at the end anyway so yeah the book is called too good to be false and you know there are so many the case for christ there are there are so many of these books but this one's very unique and i'll tell you something i would highly recommend it for homeschoolers or just for anybody, and and I think the the name of the author is Tom Gilman, but just um, if if you go online, too good to be false. I think it just came out this year or last year. It's it's an excellent book, and and I'm only about a third of the way into it right now, but I I'm very very impressed, and I hope you'll pick it up. Sometimes we get too complicated in our defense of our Messiah, our our Savior, and this book is not complicated. This book, you could understand it no matter who you were. And, yeah. Anyway, check it out. So, next week, we will be starting uh, Gospel of Mark Chapter 7 um, and the All Foods Clean brouhaha, but from a different way that, than most people approach it. And I will see you then. Mm-hmm.